Heavenly Father, we thank you that you not only created, but you made yourself known to the creation. We thank you that even when creation was corrupted by by sin, that you had a love and a care for your creation to provide the means of salvation, a plan which you had even before the creation of the world. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we hear from you. We hear from you as we hear your word. And we pray that as we hear your word, that we might respond in humility, that we might be changed by your spirit to become more like your son. Lord, we pray that for for all of us, that through time in your word, that we might be changed, brought nearer to you, and changed to be more like you. Not because we try harder, because of the enabling of your spirit within us. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try hard to walk in obedience. I'll just correct my own prayer there if I can. I've done that a few times. I've prayed something like, that doesn't sound right. Now, if you ever get bored next time, you're trying to procrastinate, you've watched, you've watched every single YouTube video on goats that ever exists, and you think, what next? And you think, oh, that's what I come to church for. What's the next recommendation? Google weird laws in the world. Like, you don't even need to go outside of your own country to find some absolute crackers. In Western Australia, you can be fined and jailed for up for 12 months for cleaning up seabird or bat poo without a licence. Now, I know there's a lot of things that you could have on your CV to imagine that licensed bat poo cleaner. Now, let's stay in Western Australia. There's another thing. You can be fined thousands of dollars for having in your possession more than 50 kilos of potatoes. Now, someone, expl- someone once explained to me the reasoning behind that, but I've forgotten again already. Now, we don't live in Western Australia. You might have visited there. But imagine if you were born there. I'm guessing most West Australians are totally oblivious that those rules exist. And how ripped off would you be if you got sentenced for cleaning up poo? Jailed for 12 months. But we're not talking about West Australia. Let's for a moment be honest about laws that apply to us that I know a pretty high percentage of us have probably broken. Even when they put in that law $1,000 fine for touching your phone while you're in the driver's seat of a car, I'm not going to take a poll of who's looked at a text message at traffic lights or who's answered a phone calls. They forgot to set up the Bluetooth. But I would imagine it's a, a reasonably high percentage of people in this room. Now, especially if you're stuck at a stop sign or a traffic light, you're out in the middle of nowhere, there's no cars around and you think, it's not going to harm anyone. What's the odds of actually getting caught? Now, a number of you know that I'm not particularly famous for wearing shoes on a regular basis, including when I drive, and yes, I am aware that's actually illegal to do so. I've yet to meet someone who's been fined for driving barefoot. And if I'm honest, in my heart, the question is, what's the odds of actually getting caught? doing that and it says something about our hearts doesn't it it says that we make our own assessment 
if we perceive something to be safe, if we think we're not hurting me, not hurting anybody else, we're not likely to get caught, not likely to have any consequences, we think, I just might cheekily ignore that one. I remember a speeding campaign, I think it was in New South Wales, and the tagline was, speeding, it's just a matter of time. And the message was, you might get away with it a few times, but we're going to get you. Well, that was the, the plan anyway. When Jesus speaks of his return and our need to be ready, it's not just a case of, oh, you've got reasonable odds that might affect you. Jesus speaks of this as a certainty. And regardless of how many people think, what's the odds of Jesus actually returning? What's the odds that he'll actually judge mankind in the way in which the scriptures say he will? Regardless of how many people ask those questions, 100% of humanity, guaranteed, will be eternally affected by the return of Jesus. We've been looking at Mark chapter 13, we started a little bit last week, where Jesus is responding to a couple of questions by four disciples in front of him. They're asking, this destruction of the temple, when's that going to take place? What are some ways we might know when you're going to return in the end of the age? And last week, as we looked at chapter 1, sorry, chapter 13, verses 1 to 23, Jesus had two main warnings for people. One was, don't be misled. Don't be misled by people saying, no, follow, come follow after me. Or don't be misled even, he says, by people who do particular miraculous signs. But he also says, don't be alarmed. Like when people say, oh, earthquakes, disease, pestilence must mean the end. He says, no. He says, these things are meant to happen. They, they are not the end. They are the beginning of birth pains, he said. Things that would characterise this world in which we live in from Jesus' first coming until his second. But he also speaks about a number of things. He says, you will see, you will hear, you will experience. Things that he was talking to, the people in front of him saying, this will happen in your lifetime. You'll see earthquakes and things like that. They did in the first century. There was many of them. He said, you will suffer opposition by religious leaders, by state leaders, by even your own family. And the book of Acts is basically a description of that exactly happening. And including the distraction of the temple. Today Jesus continues to speak about his return and how the temple provides a lesson for every one of us. He speaks of a different coming in verses 24 to 27, a lesson to remember in verses 28 to 31, don't be a sleepy head, verses 32 to 34. And it will make sense in the end. Put your shoes on. A different coming. Now we're only a couple of months away from Christmas. And it's a time when people who give no thought to it otherwise will at least give at least a moment's thought to the idea of Jesus Christ coming to the world. People will flock in crowds to sing songs. And with a big smile on their face, regardless of what they think about Jesus, they'll think, glory to the newborn king. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king, God and sinner reconciled. It's funny the way people just 
proclaim these things with a big smile on their face regardless of what they think about the content. And regardless of what they view is of the church and of Christians, I think it's fair to say the majority of people have a positive view of the idea that Jesus came into the world. Not necessarily agreement of everything claimed about him, but think he was a good bloke. He was a nice guy. He was on the side of the oppressed. He healed people. Even his enemies couldn't say a bad work against him. But look at the way he came that first time. He came in humility, born in a food trough. The majority of people didn't rightly recognise who he was and therefore did not honour him as such. On the majority of occasions, he was despised, rejected and eventually handed over to be crucified. He came the first time to suffer. Not to suffer out of an accident or an unfortunate ending to his life, but to serve the mission of his coming. To lay down his life, to bear the wrath of God against sin upon his own body on the cross on behalf of sinful mankind. But when Jesus speaks about his return, it's a very different description, isn't it? It's not one of humility and people not recognising of who he is. He says, when the Son of Man comes, he will come with the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. That's very different to coming in humble, born in a food trough with great power and glory. The way the Apostle Paul describes it in Philippians 2 says, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So in his first time he came in humility, second times he comes in great glory and in power. In the first time people didn't recognise rightly who he is and honour him as such, but in his second coming there is a universal recognition of who he is and there'll be a universal recognition of his worthiness to receive honour and praise that every knee will bow. Unlike the barefoot driver thinking, what's the odds? The scriptures plainly tell, everybody will see, everybody will know, everybody will bend the knee. When he comes in glory and power to gather his people, to judge the living and the dead, and to usher in a new heavens and a new earth. And there will be a final and eternal division of people into two camps. Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 25 in simple words that some will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. He doesn't put a grey in between. He says there's an eternity for everyone, either eternal punishment or eternal life. For those who have rightly recognised who Jesus is, the creator, the sustainer, the giver of every good and perfect gift, the rightful ruler and king of all creation and the one whom every single one of us is guilty of not honouring him as the Lord and king of all creation, not giving him thanks and the worship to which he is due. 
and the one to which all of us are without hope of reconciliation to him by our actions, but only in the means he provided by the death of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. Then by faith in Christ, turning from our sin, turning to him, placing our trust in that his punishment on our behalf is sufficient, we are reconciled to God and that is a glorious day. It is a day when everything that we've hoped for will be in all of its perfection. We will see him face to face. There will be no more death, sickness, pain or sadness. But Jesus also says that on his coming there will be great cosmological signs. The sun darkened, the moonlight gone, stars falling, powers shaken. A sign that everything about this universe, that as we know it, is coming to an end. For those who have placed their trust in Christ will enter into their perfect new creation. But it will be a day of great regret and terror for those who have not yet placed their trust in Christ. We've seen that Jesus speaks about an eternity for everybody. He says there's two camps. It's either eternal punishment or eternal life. Eternal punishment, eternal life. If you were to put that Honestly, it's an A, B, multiple choice before anyone. Would you rather be punished eternally? Would you rather have, for all eternity, have the wrath of God against your sin and rebellion against him, or to having placed your trust in the means to be set free from that in Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, and to have eternal life full of all of his blessings and his goodness, which box do you think you'd tick? Everyone's going to tick the eternal life box, don't they? So why is it when you put this option before mankind, people don't choose the, the one that we think that you obviously think that they would? It comes down to that question and that statement we used at the beginning. People think, what's the odds of that really happening? What's the odds that Jesus will actually come back? And what's the odds if Jesus does come back that he would be so narrow-minded to create this division of eternal punishment or eternal life based on our response to his one narrow means of salvation, trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus knows our minds the way that we think and it's no surprise that he comes back to the lesson of the fig tree, a lesson to remember. If you haven't been here for a while or you haven't read Mark recently, the idea of the fig tree came back to chapter 11 of Mark. As Jesus is heading towards the temple, he's hungry. He sees a fig tree up in the distance and he goes to it hoping to find food, but there's nothing. And he curses that fig tree. Now initially, if you read that on your own, it looks like Jesus had a bit of a tanty because he was hungry and he didn't get what he wanted. But when you understand it in its context... Jesus is using that as an illustration for what is to come. He cursed that fig tree because it was not producing the fruit for which it was created. And immediately from cursing that fig tree, he enters into the temple, which he finds to be exactly the same, not producing the fruit for which it was created. 
Jesus ends up rebuking them. You have turned what is designed to be a house of prayer for all of the nations into a den of robbers. And in case it was unclear if there was a connection between those two things, as they're leaving the temple, one of the disciples notices, oh, that tree you cursed, it is now withered away from the roots. That encounter with the fig tree surrounds Jesus' engagement with the temple as a sign that it too was cursed and due for destruction. Not only because it's about to become redundant, because Jesus is about to be the fulfilment of every function that the temple was intended to have, but because everything that it had become had become a rejection of everything that Jesus was. So Jesus departs on this last time. One of the disciples notes, oh, nice buildings, lovely big stones. And Jesus says, not one of these stones are going to be left standing. And come 70 AD under Titus, the temple was completely and utterly destroyed. Now here Jesus returns to the lesson of the fig tree. A lesson to learn from. And in no uncertain terms makes it clearly known This is definitely going to happen. Nothing can stand in the way of the destruction of the temple. He says, when you see these things, especially as you referred earlier, being surrounded by the armies, you know that it's about to happen. It's not only definite, but it is soon. He says, this generation will not pass away. So, adding certainty to the surety of it, he says, even heaven and earth, as we know it, it, it'll pass away, but my word does not. He says, it is even more certain that its destruction will happen, is even more certain than anything in all of creation. So in verses 24 to 27, we have the absolute assurance that Jesus Christ will come in power and in glory to gather those who are his. And then now in verses 28 to 31, we have the absolute assurance of the judgment and destruction upon the temple for not bearing the fruit that it was created to produce, for being an affront and in opposition to all who Christ is. But both the fig tree and the temple are not the end of the lesson in and of itself, but point forward to a future act of God's wrath. When Jesus returns again, not only will he gather the elect, he will judge every single person, living and the dead. And everything that does not bear fruit, everything that does not bring glory and honour to Jesus, everyone who has not turned to him in faith, will be judged and destroyed. Just as Jesus said of the temple, no stone will be left standing. You could also equally say, No person, other than by faith in God's only means of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection received by faith, no one other than by that means will stand before God's judgment. Jesus has provided the way of salvation, but to ignore it, you remain under his wrath. As it says in John 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him.
Now at this point someone might say, oh, easy on Steve. You're going a bit hard on this whole wrath sort of stuff. And on one hand there's a point. No Christian should ever speak about the wrath of God against sinful mankind with a smile on their face. It should bring no Christian any joy to see any person, even your worst enemy, receiving the justice and the wrath of God for their sin. Even God himself says he has no delight in the death of the wicked. It should grieve our hearts deeply to think of anyone that we know, whether we like them or don't like them, that they would endure eternal punishment. Especially when we know what God has provided to set us free from that. So does that mean we shouldn't speak about wrath, judgment and hell? Of course not. Guess what? Jesus speaks about those things all of the time. It's important to speak about those things. Shouldn't be the shouldn't be the primary focus, but it shouldn't be something that shouldn't be neglected. I'd go so far to say we do the gospel a disservice by leaving them out. When the world looks to Christians to think, is there anything to this message of the gospel? Is there anything to this idea that there might be an eternal punishment? If they look to Christians and they think, well, they don't seem like it's serious to them. They don't seem worried about it. They think, well, perhaps I don't need to either. But you cannot hear Jesus in Mark 13 or anywhere else or anywhere else in the New Testament and think that Jesus Christ and his return will be of little significance to you. It will be of eternal significance to every single person. There is absolute certainty that he will return to gather those who are his his children, those who have turned from their sin, place the trust in Christ to eternal life. But it's also guaranteed that he will act in wrath against all unrighteousness, against all who dishonour him, against all who have not turned to him as the one and only saviour. And if the question of Jesus returning is that serious, then shouldn't it be on everyone's mind? Which raises the obvious question, if it is such an important question, the natural question that our curious minds want to know, when's that going to happen? If it's that serious, I want to be ready for it. Don't be a sleepyhead. Now, if you're waiting for me to give you a date, you're going to be very, very disappointed. If you're waiting for me to even give you a century or a decade, you'll be disappointed. In a world where people make prediction after prediction after prediction, many which have been and gone and nothing happened, I think to myself, do they, do they read the Bible when they come up with these theories? Do they actually have a, give their ears to what Jesus says? He says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So the angels who he's just said, when he comes in power and glory, will be part of that event to gather up the elect from all the four corners of the earth. They've got no idea when it's going to happen. Even Jesus, as God's Son, says he doesn't know. Now that, that confuses us, doesn't it? You think, hang on, that doesn't work out. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus is God. God knows all things. Jesus says there's something he doesn't know. 
Now, of all the volumes that are written around this particular topic, I'm inclined to think this statement is specific to that moment in time in his incarnate state. As Jesus spoke there and then, he was unaware of the time. There are times throughout the scripture where you see him take hold of his divine powers and divine foreknowledge. There are times when he seems to choose not to access those things. There seems to be a voluntary laying aside of access to divine power and knowledge on occasions to demonstrate what it means to be a servant. Possibly what Paul is alluding to in Philippians 2 when he speaks of Jesus and his coming, emptying himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born of the likeness of men. Now hear me clearly, I'm not saying that Jesus was not fully God, but I am saying that he potentially voluntarily denied his access to certain traits that he would have right to take access to. Whether I'm right or wrong, stick with what the Bible says. But if the angels don't know, if Jesus as the Son, even his incarnation says he doesn't know, why do some idiots think they do know? That they figured it out? If we've seen anything over the last couple of weeks, Jesus gives us every reason not to predict. Instead, he's given us one instruction for what we should do regarding his return. He says, be on your guard, keep awake, because you do not know when the time will come. It's like, you don't know when. The next person you hear predicting it, they don't know when. Be on guard, make sure you're alert, make sure... You are ready. Jesus goes on to illustrate that point about workers whose boss goes away for a little while and then returns at an unknown time. Now, many years ago, I used to work in a call centre for an internet company doing technical support. And if you did the night shift, that was from midnight till eight in the morning. It was a large company. It was one of the largest internet companies at the time. But at that shift, there was no other department working other than technical support. And at that shift, there was usually only between two and four people in this multi-storey building. No management to be seen anywhere. And I can assure you, things happened between midnight and 8am that would not have happened if the bosses were present. Or if there was a text message come through to say the boss was coming, the actions in that room would have changed dramatically. Jesus has spoken of a certainty and a finality of his coming, but also of an unknowability of the timing of that coming. Hence why when we read through Mark 13, we see repeated phrases, be ready, be on your guard, keep watch, be ready. Even here he gives illustrations like in the hours of the night, in the third watch, when the rooster's crows, all these things that happen during the night when people are normally asleep. In other words, at a time when you're not expecting it. The focus is, it is unexpected. Elsewhere, Jesus describes it as being like in the days of Noah when people are just going about doing the normal everyday things. He will come. It could be before I finish this sermon. Could be before the end of the year, could be 2022, could be a million years ahead. I don't know. We're told not to know when, but we are told very clearly 
there is one way by which we can be ready. Put your shoes on. Now, that'll make sense in a minute. Now, one day, a few months back, I was out driving with some guys and one of them says, we're talking about using Google or Waze and whatever else, and this guy says, no, you've got to use Waze. He reckons it has far more accurate up-to-dates of where all the speed cameras and mobile speed cameras are located. So he thought, if I've got this, I'm not going to get speeding fines. That, that was his theory. Imagine if I was driving along and all of a sudden I get this pop-up that says, footwear blitz ahead. Now, I don't, I'm sure, don't think there's ever been a footwear blitz yet. But I, I reckon I'll probably be grabbing over in the passenger side footwell, grabbing the thongs and, and chucking them on. You've got to put your shoes on. With the definite return of Jesus and there being eternal consequences for everybody and happening at a time that we don't know, we need to be ready. And you can be ready. You can be absolutely confident that you can be ready. The thought of Jesus Christ returning will either be the greatest joy for someone or their greatest dread. What is it that he has come to judge and exercise his wrath against? Against rebellion against him, or what the Bible calls sin, which all of us have done. Why did Jesus come the first time? To specifically deal with the problem of sin. He came to lay down his life as a ransom for many. He came down to bear God's wrath against sinful mankind on his own body as a perfect substitute. That all who would turn from their sin and trust in him would have everlasting life. Jesus has already done the heavy lifting. So if you recognise that you haven't honoured him, you just, deep down you know, He's worthy. This is the God who's made us and he's given us everything and I'm not giving him thanks. I haven't honoured him my life. I don't think about him. I just do my own thing. If you've never turned from living from yourself, that is living in sin, that's all it means just to live for yourself with disregard for God and you place your trust in him, you can. You can even be this very day that you turn from living for yourself and place your trust in Jesus. And in faith, receive forgiveness, guilt and shame dealt with in its entirety for past, present and future. Given the very righteousness of Christ, indwelt by his Holy Spirit, secured and marked as his very own possession for whom he will one day come and draw you into the eternal blessedness with him. You need to put your shoes on. Now where's this shoes bit coming from? When Paul speaks of the armour of God in Ephesians 6, he says, As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. He says, you can have peace with God and the means by which you have peace with God is provided in the gospel. Jesus' death on behalf of sinners received by faith. He died on your behalf was raised on the third day, demonstrating his victory over sin, death and Satan, that he is able to do all that he has promised for those who are his. He will come again to gather his own 
to judge the living and the dead. And you can have a readiness. A readiness not just to avoid a future judgment day, but a readiness for peace with God here and now, adopted into his family as sons, his spirit dwelling within you. The joy of growing in him, the joy of being entrusted with the mission of the gospel to share in a world that is headed towards judgment, that they may be set free by the very same completed work of Jesus. I'm glad Jesus didn't tell us when. Because I know from human nature, we will be complacent. We'll be slack. We'll start worrying about it the day beforehand. But because it is an unknown, it is an urgency. It is an urgency for those who have not placed their trust in Jesus because none of us know when it's going to be. Could be today, could be a million years. There was a serious car crash not far from our house last night where we believe someone passed away. They had no idea that was going to be that day. You don't know when will be your last day, whether it be Jesus' return or anything else. But you can know with absolute certainty how you can be ready for that day. But before some attempted to think, yeah, that's urgent for all these people I know who don't know Jesus, there is an urgency for those who do know Jesus. There is an urgency that you have been entrusted with the message of the gospel. To go and make disciples of all nations. To share with people the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. And so whether you do know Jesus, there is that urgency of the message. Because we don't know the day or the hour. And if you don't know Jesus, there's the urgency of the unknown of when he'll return to make sure you are ready. Jesus has done everything for you to be ready, you seem turn from your sin, place your trust in him, and he will help you with the rest. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we can't ready ourselves by any list of good achievements. Because even on our best of days, we don't honour you anywhere near as much as we should. If it was merely a reward for, for our best efforts, none of us would enter into eternal life. But because the way of peace, the way of hope, the way of salvation is the only means, is by Jesus' perfect sacrifice on behalf of sinners, that we are justified, declared right in your sight, through faith, that we are raised to newness of life with Christ, and that he will one day return to gather those who are his own from every corner of the world. Lord, we thank you that you have provided the means of hope that we might not need to be concerned or shaken about the knowledge of knowing there will be a day when we will see you face to face. We can have a hope, a peace and a confidence that we can proclaim nothing more than the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness that we have received in faith. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. For those who'd like to prepare and think ahead for next week, we're looking at chapter 14, 1 to 11, and I'd encourage you to do that throughout the week.